five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Humans to Venus. So just that episode title should presumably be enough to get you interested because it is actually exactly what it says on the tin. We're going to be talking mostly about how to establish a permanent human presence on Venus or more specifically in the Venusian atmosphere. And then we'll segue into talking about a new space venture studio being set up to facilitate all of that. And our guest is the founder and chairman of Humans to Venus, Guillermo Sonline. Enjoy. My name is Raphael Rodkin, and I'm an investor and advisor to space companies. Just as a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only, and nothing should be taken as investment advice. This podcast is sponsored by Nanoavionics, a satellite manufacturer and mission integrator. Their technologies enable many space companies worldwide to offer services that improve life right here on Earth such as providing global connectivity, conducting Earth observation, or contributing to scientific discoveries. Check them out, and also check out my episode with the CEO and co-founder. Sadly, I am not a rocket scientist, but I'm an alumnus of the International Space University. ISU offers a number of educational programs about space worldwide. Check them out at isunet.edu. And just some final things before we start the episode about ourselves. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as Apple or Spotify. If you want us help expand our work, you can do so and support us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. And we'll also put that link in the episode notes. And lastly, you can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. Hello, welcome back everybody to another episode of the Space Business Podcast. Now it's episode number 101, because you may have noticed the last episode was the big episode number 100, which was a review of what we've done so far and what we may want to do in the future. So check out that episode as well. But now it's episode number 101 and our guest is actually a second time guest. He was on before, but sort of in a more general role, Guillermo Sonline, who's also a colleague of mine at my Space VC fund um, E2MC, where he's acting as an executive in residence. But today he's here to talk about um, something called Humans to Venus, where he is the founder and chairman. Welcome, Guillermo. Thanks for having me. And by the way, congratulations on reaching the century mark on the, on the podcast. I still remember when you started this a while back. It's been, it's been a wild ride. It, 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 it seems like ages ago in the space, the space sector has certainly got many things has happened, have happened in the space sector. This was before the SPAC bubble and everything, but yeah, that's a, that's a different episode. <laughs> and yeah. again, you were on, it's been a while since you were on, I think you were one of the earlier guests. So also for memory, it's probably something like two years ago. Again, um, back in the day, we had a more sort of general chat about space in your you know previous roles and long time experience with quote unquote, a new space, as some people call it as, you know, one of the, as the original founder of the Space Angels Network and some of your other roles. But today we want to hear about Humans to Venus. What's the, yeah. what is it? What's the elevator pitch? Yeah, well, and thanks for having me. I know when I was on here last time, uh, Humans to Venus was still in what we we're calling kind of semi-stealth mode and that we were talking to people but more in smaller one-on-one -on -one conversations rather than more publicly. And that's changed really over the last couple of months. So 
thank you for, for having me on. And then we can chat about this a little bit more publicly. So humans to Venus at its core, if I had to boil it down to kind of a one sentence thing, uh, we're a space focused venture studio with a long-term investment thesis focused on, um, I guess we'd call it our BHAG, our big, hairy, audacious goal of having a thousand people living and working in the Venusian atmosphere by the year 2050. So I'll kind of stop there because that's a lot to, uh, to absorb. Yeah, there's, but. but there's certainly, um, well, there are several angles to unpack here for sure. Yeah. So where to start? Okay. So first thing is sort of like, I guess, obvious question I have many other people listening right now will have is like, it's like, why Venus? It's like, do you have something against Mars, which is like sort of the typical planet people want to go to? And I could like make some joke about like, you know, the, the book, the Venus Mars book that's out there. <laughs> but why, why Venus? Yeah, well, I think first of all, I think we should backtrack a little bit. I think what's driving everyone involved with humans to Venus is a more general desire to make humanity a multi-planet species. And in order to do that, we probably mm -hmm. need as many choices, choices as possible or options as possible for potential destinations. So whether that is orbiting space stations, free-flying space stations, communities on the lunar surface or on the Martian surface, that's fine by us. Um, we just think Venus, specifically the Venusian atmosphere, is one, uh, one of the alternatives that we should be exploring and considering. And, so I guess the short answer is... Have nothing against Mars. Yeah. Oh, right. Okay. So your original question. Yeah. Why Venus? Yeah. Um, so so let's backtrack a little bit um, just to give a little bit of context, I guess, for why I started this. I'll kind of answer the entrepreneur question while answering the Venus question. Um, so first of all, I've, I've been a lifelong... I've had a lifelong passion for making humanity a multi-planet species. I think I've said before publicly, right? I had, when I was 11 years old, I had a recurring dream that I was the commander of the first human colony on Mars. And so I've kind of spent my entire life looking at uh, the ways that it, to make humanity a multi-planet species and what it would need to happen. Uh, and so in my mind, it was always, you know, moon, Mars, beyond everything that we've been talking about for, for a while now. Um, but one thing always bothered me about the permanence of a human presence off planet and just kind of putting myself in the position of being one of these people that's living on these off world communities. And that was uh, the lack of gravity. And for me, that was a problem, mostly when I thought about this from a multi-generational standpoint, where humans were going to have to be somewhere in some off-world community and reproduce, uh, have a next generation of, of humans, and then continue that forward. And I'm not a doctor, I'm not a medical professional, but I've talked with enough to know that the medical community, even today, is not sure if Homo sapiens as an animal species could even reproduce in less than one G of gravity. Mm -hmm. We don't know if we can conceive. We don't know if we can carry a fetus to term. We don't know if there's going to be birth defects. We have no idea. And hopefully we will be able to do that. Uh, or if there are problems, the medical community will figure out ways around it. And we will be able to have long-term permanent uh, communities in on the lunar surface, on the Martian surface or in orbit. But that lack of gravity always bothered me. Uh, for, for years and years and years and years. And then about five years ago, uh, I read a paper that was uh, kind of summarizing some of the findings from some of the old Soviet Venera missions uh, to Venus. 
And it dawned on me as I was looking through the the data that, uh, yeah, we should have been looking at Venus from a, from a gravity standpoint because it's similar mass, similar size. So it has similar gravity to Earth. It's basically 98% of Earth's gravity. Um, but what hit me in looking at the, the documents talking about the Venera missions was that uh, 50 kilometers off the Venusian surface, there are uh, conditions that are conducive to human human life. Um, actually, let's backtrack. One of the reasons we have not been looking the, the counter the the counter to your question. One of the reasons we have not been looking at Venus historically is because at the surface Venus is way too hot and the pressure is mm-hmm. way too great. Um, but that's why this data from the Venera missions kind of stood out to me because in the Venusian atmosphere, there's a band, maybe 50, 60 kilometers off the surface where the atmospheric pressure is one atmosphere, kind of like sea level here on earth. Uh, the temperature is roughly like a hot day in the middle East, let's say. And, um, there's enough atmosphere left above you that it provides sufficient radiation protection, even though you're closer to the sun and don't really have a strong magnetic field to protect you from radiation. So it seems like, it seems like there, it's almost like a Goldilocks zone, you know, in about 50, 60 kilometers off the Venusian surface. Um, so I thought, well, we should be looking at that. Why isn't anyone looking at that? Um, and then kind of looked around, poked around, did some research. And it turns out NASA had been looking at it. A lot of people had been looking at it. Um, it just hadn't, it seemed like it just hadn't gained the level of momentum that the moon or, or Mars had. So I guess maybe I'll push pause there because I gave you way more than you were asking for as far as why Venus. But the short answer to why Venus is similar gravity and 50, 60 kilometers off the Venusian surface, the rest of the environmental conditions seem to be uh, favorable for human occupation or habitation. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm just speculating that one simple reason that people then haven't looked a lot is that because our our being, I guess, mostly space agency focused on exploring other worlds has mostly been star, you know, places where we can go and have scientific missions. And of course, you can land a rover on Mars. But for the reasons you mentioned, if you land a rover on the Venusian surface, it'll, I think, like the Venera probe operated for like half an hour or something like that from memory because it's 600 degrees centigrade and just not, not very nice conditions. And I guess in the past, we haven't really, I, I think before Elon, there was probably only individual people here and there who really thought about sort of making life, um, um, humanity multiplanetary. But you're absolutely right now that that is a, a, a goal of many people. It seems to make perfect sense with that Goldilocks zone you're describing. And that's actually a very important point. I just want to make sure people understand that we're not talking about orbit here, right? And uh, we're really talking about 50, you said 50 kilometers off the, the surface. So it's, um, yeah, it's the same. Like if you did this here on earth, right. And, um, people can check out another episode of ours, which is for our friends at a company called space perspective. We're going to take people in stratospheric balloons, approximately 40, 50 kilometers off the surf of the earth surface. And they, they always make a point of describing that you, you do have one G gravity there, right? Uh, you don't have to deal with microgravity because as much fun as it is, it also of course brings, brings complications. So how would that work Guillermo how so if we wanted to stay because we can't stay on the surface because nothing can really survive there I mean maybe then other than some bacteria that we don't don't know about how would we sort of realistically 
stay in the atmosphere. I mean, uh, you can imagine the obvious image that now comes to my mind is uh, Star Wars, The Empire Strikes uh, Back and Lando Carizian's uh, City in the Clouds. Yeah, exactly. So, so first of all, uh, I think part of that question was answered a little bit by the Venera program because uh, the way the Soviets got a lot of this data was by dropping probes through the atmosphere. And some of the Venera missions actually floated something, uh, a probe under a parachute, right? Kind of coming down through the, through the atmosphere so it could linger in the Venusian atmosphere. Um, and if I remember correctly, they maybe even inflated a balloon. I think one of the Venera missions even inflated a balloon in the atmosphere. Um, but you're right. The surface is completely inhospitable. I think the longest one of the Venera missions uh, probes on the surface lasted, I think it was like two hours. Um, but really, they just got a couple of images and that was it. Um, so how would this happen? So again, keeping in mind, I'm not a scientist and I'm not an engineer, but I've talked with a lot of scientists and engineers. Um, one of the things that is interesting about the Venusian atmosphere is that it's mostly uh, CO2 and it's very thick, which means that if you need to float something in the atmosphere, let's say at 50 kilometers, you need just like the atmosphere here on Earth, you need a lifting gas, right? Something that would that would hold it at that at that uh, altitude. Now, here on Earth, in order to lift a body into the atmosphere, let's say under a balloon, we use either hot air, we take our normal breathable atmosphere and we heat it, or we use a lighter than atmosphere um, gas such as helium or hydrogen. Uh, it turns out that the atmosphere in uh, on Venus is so thick that our normal breathable air 80% nitrogen, 20% oxygen would actually float in that atmosphere. So if you think about this, theoretically, you could have a platform uh, and, and let's say a flat platform and put a dome over it and pump the dome full of our normal breathable air. And that theoretically should float roughly at 50 or 60 kilometers in the Venusian atmosphere. Um, so as you can imagine, with something like that, not being an engineer or, or, or a scientist, I have to rely on experts for that. And some of the experts that we've relied on for this are, for example, since you mentioned space perspective, Jane Pointer and, and Tabor McCallum over at Space Perspective, mm -hmm. because they do this for a living, right? And there are plenty of other scientists out there who have looked at this and run the numbers. Um, and so some of the proposed missions to Venus would be to take something that's uh, got an inflatable uh, structure and fill it with some of our normal earth breathable air and see how it would float and what the lifting properties would be like in, in the Venusian atmosphere. But you're right, at the end of the day, it does end up looking like one of the cloud cities from, from Star Wars. But which let's all agree is a huge argument in favor of this project. Clearly. No. Well, you know, it's interesting since this is a space business podcast, right? Uh, and there are a lot of your listeners are also entrepreneurs. This does present for me, us and the founding team, a double edged sword, because on the one hand, yeah, it's cool and it's potentially doable and provides this long term vision. On the other hand, you run the risk of not being taken seriously. Right. Because you, you run the risk of being a sci fi project uh, or or, um, you know, uh, Lucasfilm project rather than a serious um, endeavor worthy of yeah, investment or time and things like that. Okay, let's take a step back and sort of, I think I know the answer 
um, you want to give me, but given you also your longstanding history as a space investor, entrepreneur, and just member of the space ecosystem, don't you think the fact that just having some grand vision in the background, which arguably SpaceX has with going to Mars, but then you have potentially extremely profitable steps on the way, like reusable launch business or satellite communication system, isn't that the best of all worlds? Because I mean, the grand vision allows you to do certain things, right? Like, yes, it may actually make it more difficult to attract investors, although you arguably, I would argue, would get some investors just because of that. Maybe not a majority, but some you will get because of that. But also in terms of staff, your team, right? I mean, it's just it's completely different if you're working towards, you know, going to Mars or going to Venus, then it's like, oh, you're you're working, your vision is to establish a global SATCOM constellation, however important that may be as well. I, th I think you're right, uh, timing wise, because I think even as recently as maybe five years ago, that wouldn't have been the case. Um, as you know, for example, um, I... I previously served on the board of a company called Deep Space Industries, which was originally mm -hmm. founded on the idea of asteroid mining, which was another one of these long-term grand visions. Um, even when they founded it, they figured it, they wouldn't actually get to mine asteroids for another 20 or 30 years. Um, and that was exactly that grand vision was exactly what you what you just described. It, it allowed them to bring in some investors. It allowed them to bring in staff, especially. Um, it, it just made it very difficult to manage on a day-to-day -day basis because you couldn't do asteroid mining 10 years ago. Sure. Um, I, th I think today with the success, since you mentioned SpaceX, with the success that SpaceX has had in, in pushing a lot of this, I think it does allow space entrepreneurs to have grander visions and get away with it and be taken more seriously as long as they have a realistic a reasonable near-term business model and a reasonable path for how to get from today to that long-term vision. I think that's also, since I was giving the example of DSI, I think that's also why we're seeing a resurgence, for example, of asteroid mining companies. Because I know even you and I at E2MC, we've seen a few pitches already for asteroid yes. mining companies. And, and I think that's what's allowing them to do that. And honestly, I think that's one of the... Um, biggest effects of Elon and SpaceX that not a lot of people talk about is, is just giving credibility to these, what used to be called, you know, wild eyed space freaks, you know, now they're being considered legitimate entrepreneurs, even though they have, you know, in, incredible long-term visions. And I think it's great. Just so you are allowed now to have an audacious vision. And, and by the way, asteroid mining. So one of the recent episodes is uh, with Matt Gialik from Astroforge. I encourage people to check that out as well for you know a grand grand vision. So yeah, you can have an audacious vision. Um, but yes, just to be clear, I think we all agree people then in order to keep a business, build a business and keep it running, you still need to have a roadmap where you can make money along the way and your investors believe you can make money along the way. But actually... I guess that's a nice segue into um, how we can potentially make money sort of with the grand vision of going to Venus. And we sort of started talking about a little bit indirectly because we started talking about, you know, gravity and atmosphere and all of this. I mean, effectively, once we set the goal that we want to you know, establish a presence in the Venusian atmosphere, almost the next step is, I guess, we have to determine what is the technology stack we need for that, right? And which then may present business opportunities. So. Let's let's just talk through that, like the, the key, what would you think the key elements of the technology stack are? And let me just kick off with one and then you, you feel free to kind of uh, go where you want to go with the others. Um, I guess one basic question I had is about transport. Um, 
as I guess this is technically interplanetary transport. So, you know, assuming something like Starship works that rather than going to Mars, it could also go to Venus. I'm assuming, um, I must admit, I should know this, but I don't even know how, how long does it take to go to Venus? Oh, right. So first of all, let me answer that question first, because I left that out of my answer to your first question of why Venus. Uh, another huge um, advantage to Venus is it's so much closer to Earth than uh, Mars or any other planet. Um, and our orbits are much more similar than uh, Mars and Earth's. So as you probably already know, just from watching some of these launches, um, because of Mars's highly elliptical orbit, um, there are times where the two planets are very close together and there are times where we're very far apart. Mm -hmm. And that, that, that um, conjunction happens every 26 months. Yeah. Uh, and that's why every 26 months, there's like a two week window where everyone's launching everything they can to, to go to Mars. Um, whereas Venus is, uh, orbit is much more similar to Earth's, and therefore um, <clears throat> it presents a lot more potential launch opportunities. You can almost launch just about any time. So, for example, now I'm not going to get the numbers right, and some, someone in your audience is going to skewer me for not knowing the exact numbers, but it's something like <clears throat> if you hit that, that conjunction window for Mars, let's say the transport, um, the, the time is like six months, and if you miss it, it's like 12 months or more. Uh, it's, it's a big, it's a big cost if you miss that window as opposed to okay. Venus. If you hit it, it's like four months. And if you miss it, it's like six months, you know, so it all averages out, um, much, much easier. Now that's important from, a uh, uh, operations perspective, but it's important from a cost perspective, obviously, because you don't require as much time to get there. Most importantly for something like humans to Venus, it's important from a safety standpoint, because, uh, one of the highest risks for, uh, human spaceflight, interplanetary human spaceflight is the exposure to radiation during the flight. Mm -hmm. So the le less time you can spend going from one planet to the other is, is much better for you. And especially if you're going to Venus where you're getting closer to the sun and getting exposed to more radiation. So anyway, so that was an important point. Um, so your question though more about the technology stack and all that, maybe let's backtrack a little bit more since I brought up DSI. Um, one of the CEOs at DSI is now um, founder and CEO of, of Orbit Fab, a guy named Daniel Faber. Mm -hmm. I can't remember. Have you had yes. Daniel on the podcast? Yes. Yes. He was one yeah. of the early yeah. guests. He was a little bit before you even. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I figured. So one of the things I really liked about Daniel, um, which he did at, um, at DSI and he's doing again at Orbit Fab is exactly what, what you just said. He does that exercise where he looks at the long-term vision and creates the technology roadmap that it takes to get from today to that end goal. And then he tries finding something on that technology roadmap that today can, can make money or be a viable business. Um, and for something like Humans to Venus, we're going to have to do the same thing. So since I mentioned I wasn't, uh, I'm not a technical person, one of the first things I had to do was find a technical co-founder. So uh, spe almost specifically to do exactly that exercise that you just mentioned. So I brought in um, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Khalid Al-Ali, who is from Qatar, but he spent a lot of time in the U.S. He got his all his degrees from U.S. universities and he worked at NASA and did startup in Silicon Valley. Um, so he knows a, a lot of this stuff and he can perform the exercise that, that, that you mentioned. Um, so what we did initially when we came up with that BHAG of a thousand people in the Venusian atmosphere by the year 2050 is we created a high level 
ops plan? What would it look like starting from 2050? If we had to get a thousand people there, what would the next 30 years look like? Very, very high level. You know, how many missions would we have to do? Uh, things like that. And it turns out, even at a high level, if you looked at it, it's, it seems extremely doable, which is the scary part. Um, you know, the first 10 years are really going to be spent on learning more about the planet, doing more science missions, doing some tech demo missions, things like that. You're not going to be sending humans to Venus, excuse me, in the next you know 10 years. But um, but you you will need to send um, probes and tech demos uh, out there um, in large part to determine to refine the technology roadmap that you're asking about, right? Um, and then it accelerates in the middle of 20 years, and then obviously the bulk of the missions get done in the last 10 years. Um, and so you mentioned transportation. So that is the that was one of the keys as we were doing this, is we realized as you did the ops plan, the key was gonna be having a reliable transportation system um, that could get, get all these missions from Earth to, um, to Venus. And yes, we use Starship as a, as a kind of a, a placeholder for any other any other transportation system that, that may may arise over the next thirty years, um, and even with that, we figured even if if SpaceX the schedule that Elon put out for Sp Starship, even if that slips ten years, it's still doable over the next thirty years um, to to do this. Um, and uh, and to answer your implied question, we have had some informal discussions with with SpaceX and Starship could be repurposed. We, we believe it could be repurposed for going to Venus instead of going to Mars. Um, but as everyone can imagine, um, Elon controls Starship and Elon has not yet looked at the viability of taking it from Starship uh, from from Mars to Venus. But it does seem doable. So related question, I think on um, sort of your big vision does the the goal of taking or sort of taking of of establishing a human presence of um and we're just using the round number of a thousand humans in the Venusian atmosphere in order to enable that in a you know I, I suppose sustained way have you guys made any calculations just even rough calculations of how much tonnage is needed to do that Ooh. in the same way that elon and his team have done that for mars to establish a city on mars uh, no, we didn't. We have not run numbers to that detail. No. Okay. Yeah, fine. I mean, that certainly would be interesting at some point in time just to understand the sort of the size of the task. And then, of course, that translates back into, into money as well, <laughs> sort of more or less directly. Yeah, I mean, but let's. I mean, hmm. we did look at it from the standpoint of number of, number of flights that we thought we would need, like number of Starship mm -hmm. flights we thought we would need. Um, and again, that's where it, it was just one of these exercises where, you know, you start off with, okay, maybe we need, let's just say 10 flights. And then you're like, oh, to be safe, let's call it 20 flights. And then, well, yeah, let's just round it up to 50 flights, you know, and, and it's still, the numbers still seem to make sense. Um, and, and I think that's the issue, by the way, of with any of these uh, long-term visions of making humanity a multi-planet species. I don't think if you dig into it, I don't think it's a, it's a technical, technical hurdles we need to get past and, or it, it just seems to be just, um, you know, finding the right motivation to put everything together, put the technology and the people and the resources and the finances together. Sure. Otherwise it's all doable. Yeah. Yeah. There's no sort of known 
we're not violating laws of physics, I guess. And there's yeah, no exactly. sort of we don't, big, you know, we don't, big jump in, in in technology that's still required from what we know. Exactly. I exactly. Let's come back. I mean, so let's come back to the technology stack. So, um, okay. So we, I guess we answered the transport question that, you know, for vehicles like Starship, that's basically soft. We, we know how to go to Venus and it's going to be large tonnage available if all goes well. I mean, there's always the other stuff you would need if you want to have humans living there, especially living in a, in a, sustained way and not sort of like dipping in and out. So I'm going to throw out in no particular order and then you can feel free to address which ones you think are the more important ones of them or all of them. Um, energy, life support, right? Which translates into, I guess, energy is part of life support, but uh, stuff like, you know, food, water, like where would we get the water from? Um, um, a breathable air, some beyond life support. Um, I guess we want to have communications capability, but I think we know how to do that deep space. Um, radiation protection. Um, I'm, I'm sure there's some other stuff I'm forgetting now. Well, so I think, first of all, everything you just mentioned, generically, um, any space mission is going to need any, all of that, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, so as far as specific to Venus, though, if you think about what we're talking about, um, <clears throat> there are several things that are peculiar specific to, to Venus. Um, number one is even the fact that we're talking about this being a floating, um, community uh, or habitat in in the atmosphere, <clears throat> that's going to be unique anywhere in the solar system other than on Earth, right? So we're going to have to develop technologies that would float. Sorry, let me preface that because I saw you make a make a thoughtful a thoughtful uh, uh, look um, as far as human uh, human flight, right? Because there are other. Good. I was going to say, um, sorry, be pedantic. Um, I think. Given the atmosphere, the atmosphere density, we could probably float on Titan as well. But yeah, that, exactly. That's, yeah. that's very far away, and we don't have to float at Titan because the surface is actually completely in inhabitable, from what we know. Yeah, yeah. And as soon as I said Sorry that, from I saw your face. Remark. As soon as as soon as I said that, and I saw your face change, I knew you were thinking that. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So, for example, anything since, since the first thing that came to mind earlier for you was Star Wars, the floating cities. You know, I think any any you know trying to set up a floating habitat. Uh, for humans is going to be developing kinds of technologies that that we don't currently we're not currently exploring as far as Mars or the Moon or something like that, which again is why we've been talking to folks like um, Space Perspective uh, here on Earth. <clears throat> the other thing is going to be thinking about um, the CO two atmosphere. So we're going to have to figure out how to uh, do that on at scale. Now we we the nice thing again we don't have to violate the laws of physics or anything. We have technology here on Earth today that converts CO2 into breathable air. The scuba divers have been using rebreathers for years. Um, so it's a matter of just kind of changing, um, you know, making changes to adapt it to, to scale at, at a large scale habitat. Uh, likewise, the sulfuric acid clouds, um, which is obviously a big negative for, for us uh, on Venus. Uh, but we have materials here on Earth today that can withstand uh, sulfuric acid. The most common of these is Teflon. So, <clears throat> again, it's not like we've got to develop a warp drive or, or violate the laws of physics. We have a lot of the technologies available today, but it is going to require productizing them or kind of changing them in ways that, that we can use in Venus. Uh, I think those are going to be the biggest ones. Uh, radiation protection, I think 50, 50, 60 kilometers in the Venusian atmosphere, we should be okay. Uh, the big one is energy, as you mentioned. Uh, the nice thing for, for us, um, and Venus is being closer to the sun, we can much more easily and efficiently extract solar energy for the habitat. 
um, or I call it habitat, the community, um, the, your floating city, your Star Wars floating city. Um, you know, the other big thing obviously will be food because it's, there's not, we're not going to be on land where we can kind of put things in the, in the ground mm-hmm. and hope that they grow. Then again, we're not sure what, what's going to grow on Mars or nothing's going to grow on the moon. So, um, there's, and, and, and you and I are familiar with, with folks here on earth that are developing ways of, of creating food. So, um, so I, th- I think the, 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 you know, the a Venusian community is going to have all of the problems or issues that all the other communities are going to have, plus the specific ones having to do with being in floating in the atmosphere, dealing with the CO2 atmosphere and dealing with the uh, sulfuric acid clouds. And, and I have to plead ignorance. So on um, uh, uh, water, so on the moon and Mars, we, we know there's basically ice and uh, there's water or ice, right? Where, where do we get the water from on, on Venus and the Venusian atmosphere? And I had to learn this from my scientist friends. Um, you can convert it from the sulfuric acid um, clouds. Really? Oh, interesting. Okay. Okay, good. And then so, so that's the technology stack. And so the good news is it seems to be, again, we're not violating any laws of physics. It seems to be all there. Is that also where you see some of the kind of going back to the business and space business podcast? Is this where you see some of the potential business opportunities that the develop technology stack gets sort of like more developed, more refined for the Venusian application? Yeah, well, maybe um, I'll take that question and segue into our business model, right? Um, mm-hmm. Because, you know, when you've got this long-term vision, and again, this was a lesson learned from the DSI days, from Deep Space Industries Day. Um, when, when you've got this long-term vision and you're an entrepreneur and you create a business today that has that long-term vision, the odds of that company actually achieving that long-term vision are very slim. Like look, if you look at SpaceX, you know, Elon started this with the long-term vision of establishing humanity as a multi-planet species on Mars. And he started SpaceX by addressing one particular, just one little issue, little major issue on that roadmap, which is the, um, the space transportation system. And, um, you know, they've been, they've been at this 20 years and they still have 30 more years to go in their BHAG. And uh, they've already had to expand to do Starlink, right, to, to, to add the communication to the, to the stack. Um, it's very difficult to have one company that can pull that off. And... To the extent that SpaceX, let's say, is the exception that proves a rule, there's only one Elon, there's only one SpaceX. So the odds of setting up, let's say, humans to Venus as one company that can actually achieve that long-term goal is, is, is pretty ludicrous, I think. So instead of one company doing that, it was clear it was going to be a series of companies that are going to have to get there. Um, there are a lot of different issues, different um, opportunities within the, like you're saying, within the technology stack. Um, so one idea that I toyed with was to just um, do what essentially what DSI did, find one thing in the technology stack today, start a company focused on that, ride that one for three, four or five years, and then move on to the next one and move on to the next one, kind of do these in series. Um, spend the next 20 or 30 years building different companies along that tech stack and in that way help humanity become a multi-planet species in the Venusian atmosphere. The problem that I had personally, and that's a perfectly viable path. The problem that I had with that personally, and you know this um, because of our prior conversations, that's how I've spent the last 20 years of my life. You know, I've spent the last 20 years of my life doing startups in series. And I didn't want to spend the next 20 years of my life continuing to do the same thing. So I thought I, I, I'd, I'd rather 
attack a lot of these different opportunities and gaps in the technology stack in parallel instead of in series. And one way of doing that would be to, um, for example, create a venture fund that had this as the long-term investment thesis. And you create a portfolio of companies all along that investment thesis. And you and I know this from the discussions we had right when we were starting E2MC. Unlike you, I'm not a fund manager, right? I'm not a money manager. Um, and, um, and being launching a venture fund with this kind of investment thesis just wasn't in my wheelhouse. It wasn't what I wanted to do. I'm much more of a, of a company builder. And that's when I kind of backed into this idea of a venture studio. And you and I have talked about this before, you know, different ideas of how to do a venture studio, what a venture studio is, how to distinguish a venture studio from an incubator, an accelerator, or a venture fund, uh, and even the different models within the venture studio. But for me, it seemed to fit my personality better. It seemed to fit my experience better. Uh, it seemed to fit my network of contacts better. Uh, and when I brought in Hollett as co-founder, it seemed to fit his background and his personality better as well, because that, that was his background. So, um, so that's kind of the approach we decided to take. Um, and now I've been rambling and I just realized I forgot your original question. <laughs> so we're just, we're just, we're just segueing sort of like from the technology stack that's required to establish human a presence in the Venusian atmosphere to sort of, you know, what, you know, how do we translate this into business opportunities? Mm. And I was, I was suggesting as some of the technology stack, you know, developing that it's probably business yes. opportunity. And I said, okay, yeah, that's a good moment to talk about the business model. And, and, and yeah. And so you're talking about the, the venture studio. What I do think we should explain a little bit more is because you and I know what venture studios are. Um, if there's such a thing as a common definition, that's a whole different question, but yeah. What is your definition of a venture studio? Ooh, I hadn't really thought of that. I, 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 it's one of these things where it's like, I know it when I see it, but um, yeah, in my mind, and, and I'm used to describing it as a, a contrast, like what it's not, right? It's not an accelerator. It's not an incubator. It's not a, a venture fund. Um, I guess in my mind, it is a small multidisciplinary team of entrepreneurial folks who come up with ideas uh, business ideas, or um, and we'll we'll talk about the sources for the business ideas in a second. But come up with business ideas and run them through an incubation process, basically where they vet the ideas and kind of create, you know, the equivalent of an MVP, a minimum viable product, and do all the steps that are necessary to vet an idea, including customer discovery, market research, all that stuff. Do a lot of the business planning. Do a lot of the financials and. And get it to a point where it seems viable enough that it should uh, be launched as its own venture. Now, the particular twist that I like that I've seen other venture studios do, and this is what we're doing, is at that point in the process, the venture studio partners with a co-founder CEO, an entrepreneurial co-founder CEO that you bring in, give them, let's say, half the company. and have them take it from there where you work together to launch the venture and get it out the door. Um, and so the, at the, 
the end goal is very, I think the long-term end goal for a venture studio looks a lot like a venture fund because you end up with a minority a portfolio of minority equity stakes in, in a diverse group of companies um, that somehow follow your investment thesis. I think you end up at the same place. You end up with this portfolio. The difference is how you get there. I think a venture fund um, puts money into um, into someone else's idea, whereas a venture studio uh, is your idea and you bring in the co-founder CEO to, to kind of run it with you. Yeah. yeah it's like you go in extremely I, early, right? So venture funds, I mean, the earliest that would classify as a traditional venture fund, you would invest at a pre what we call a pre-seed stage, right? But at a pre-seed stage, there may not be a product yet, but there certainly is a sort of idea from the outside and let's call it half a team or something like that. And what you're saying is you don't need any of that because you just come up with the ideas internally and then if you think the ideas are past the first check, you'll you'll find the team around it. Yeah, and I think that's why you know you and I even discussed when you're setting up E2MCs because E2MC does pre-seed and seed investments. You know, as a as a fund management team, E2MC has an investment thesis around different sectors, and you know that there's going to be opportunities, market opportunities in the near term, and let's say over the next five years in certain sectors. And so you're actively looking for deal flow in those areas. Let's, since we brought up asteroid mining, let's just use that as an example. It's probably a bad example, but let's say that asteroid mining was one of the areas that E2MC team thought there might be uh, opportunity. So you're looking and you're mm -hmm. looking and you're looking and you're waiting for an entrepreneur to bring you an idea. And then to put that into a 2MC's portfolio, you have to have the right idea with the right team, the right technology at the right time, uh, looking for the right amount of money that fits the investment thesis for E2MC. And the odds of that happening are, may or may not be good. I don't know. But the management team, the fund management team over time will identify we'll come up with gaps. We'll realize, hey, there's an opportunity, let's say in asteroid mining, and there are no good companies out there. See, this was a bad idea because there are good companies yeah. out there now. But, but you know, the team will identify gaps. And after a while, it's like, well, do we believe in this gap enough that um, maybe we start our own company in, in that area? Uh, and that's um, in part, I know, uh, inherent in U2MC's culture. We've seen it, for example, at Founders Fund. They've, they've incubated uh, at least three of their own ventures where they saw an opportunity, yep. but there weren't any good deals to invest mm -hmm. in. So they decided to- Including a space company. Yeah, including a space company. Yeah, Barda. Um, and Dalian's been on this podcast as well, right? So Correct. Um, yep. So I think the venture studio model just kind of uh, takes that as its core is let's 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 look kind of like the fund management team let's look for opportunities that fit our investment thesis where there is a gap where we know there's nobody doing this or there's nobody doing it right or doesn't have the right team or doesn't have the right approach right technology and um and let's start our own let's see if it makes sense for us to start our own and um and then we and then the key to to success is having a a network of qualified experienced entrepreneurial CEOs that are looking for their next gig where they can come in and kind of take a half-baked idea and, and make it their own and, and, and launch it. And as you so, said at the beginning of this conversation, by the way, there is no universal definition for venture studio. I think this is just my thought on it. You've got your own thoughts. And so do you think the space sector, because certain industries can be more, how can I say this? Um, more amenable given the state the industry is in or the state of its development to having venture studios they're not right so uh, part of me 
And I don't think I have a final opinion on that, so I'd like to hear yours. So part of me thinks the space, and you notice the space sector is, is in a great moment for having venture studios because it's still the, the latest iteration of the commercial space sector is still so early on that there are just many instances where no team is covering a certain opportunity, even if the opportunity is very big. And we could go into specific examples. And, you know, we have some at E2MC as well, but we probably don't have any time to, no, no time to do that. So that's the positive side. And that's, of course, similar to, you know, sometimes we and other people make this cliche comparison between where the space sector is right now and say, well, it's kind of similar where the internet was in the sort of mid 90s. And of course, that is when you had sort of the, the some famous internet related venture studios, right? Like um, Idea Lab, I think is one example. So that's the sort of a pro argument. And at heart, that's the one I actually believe in. Now, if I had to force myself to come up with like counter arguments, then for example, something you just said, sort of like one key aspect here is to find a team, right? And God, we still seem in many ways so constrained on teams for just team members um, for space companies. So two things. It's it's good that you brought up uh, Idea Lab because I was going to use that as an example. Um, I think from a timing perspective, um, and, and you and I have talked about this, so I know we're aligned on this. Uh, I do think that the, the space industry is exactly where the internet was you know, back in the mid to late 90s. Um, also, unlike, this, uh, unlike the internet world and the software world, I think space is much more specialized, much more like, let's say, pharmaceutical industry, where um, it requires much more specialized expertise. Um, so just like I still believe that the space industry's humanity is going to need the space industry to have, let's say, a thousand space-focused venture funds like E2MC, um, I, I think uh, humanity is going to need at least a thousand space-focused venture studios to do this kind of work mm -hmm. all over the world. Um, and as of right now, I think you and I were talking before we started recording that uh, I'm only aware of three of us that are out there doing this right now. Um, but you know, we need a thousand of us out there doing this, uh, cranking out two, three, five new ventures a year. Um, if we're going to achieve some of these long-term visions that you and I or Elon have, um, and, and I think it is specialized enough that it requires uh, that kind of expertise. Now, that said, to your last point, um, I think the key is having experienced entrepreneurial CEOs. I don't think they necessarily have to be experienced space entrepreneur CEOs. Yeah. Um, and I think there are plenty of those folks around. There are a lot of experienced CEOs out there who've had success in other industries. And, and one of the things, they have a passion for space. They want to do something in space. But space to them is like this, pardon the pun, uh, this black hole, you know, that they or a black box that they don't understand. But if they have a team that's already vetted, a, a, an experienced qualified team that knows space, that's already vetted an idea and it's gotten it to the point where it's ready to be launched, um, and they can partner with them and come in as a partner and, 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 and launch this venture. Um, I think there are plenty of experienced CEOs out there to, especially if you're, you're looking around the world, there's just so many of them. Good stuff. And, and of course, any sort of entrepreneurial CEOs who are listening, who may not be from the space sector yet, but are clearly curious about space. And that's why they're listening to this, this episode. Um, that should be a positive message for you that there 
there's probably a place for you where you can be very helpful and add value. So Jim, we have like a few minutes left, really. Um, So I just wanted to check sort of the the whole overall project, you know, sort of very briefly, what's the current status? What are the next steps? Um, Is there any way for listeners to get involved? Oh, yeah. Great question. Um, So we've kind of been incubating our venture studio. So we've been incubating the incubator uh, for probably uh, three years or so. We've been going slow. Like I mentioned at the beginning, we've kind of been in semi-stealth mode. We've got about 30 people. working on this spread out between Europe and the U S uh, we're in the process of launching our first three ventures over the next three, uh, over the next 12 months. Uh, those are all still in stealth mode, so I can't really talk about them now. Um, but the first one will probably launch by September. And then we've got two back to back after that. Um, and then, um, next year, once we get those three out the door, then, um, along the way we've been honing our process and systems and stuff like that. We'll really launch operations probably this time next year, maybe end of next year. Uh, and for that, as with any other startup, I'm currently out in the world raising money for this, uh, to, to get it to the next level. So, um, as far as getting involved, anybody who's listening, who's involved with space and has ideas for, um, for new space ventures, especially if they're interested in Venus or have a tie into Venus should feel free to reach out. Anyone, as you just mentioned, who's an experienced CEO, uh, from another industry and is looking to start something in the space industry should certainly reach out and I'll connect you with the folks on our team who are working on that part. And then obviously anyone who's listening, who's an investor should feel free to reach out as well. Um, oh, and by the way, um, and not just CEOs, also board members. We need board members for our portfolio companies as well. And you just reminded me that for full transparency and disclosure, I am a board member of the holding company. Just so I say that at some point in time. <laughs> and Guillermo, last, last question. And actually, you were a repeat guest. So I, I'm pretty sure I asked you last time already about science fiction and what your favorite science fiction is, which is always my last question. So... You're probably on record already. So this is just your chance. If you, there's any sort of like one or two works that come to your mind, you want to add, especially of course, if there's any Venus reference, um, I can't think of any right now. My biggest sci-fi Venus reference is, uh, as you know, one of my favorite shows is the expanse on TV. And at some point in time, they, they crashed the entire Eros, Eros asteroid into, <laughs> into Venus. <laughs> Uh, well, I can't remember what I answered last time I was on, but uh, what I was going to say was the expanse. Um, and, and not just because of the Venus thing. I think it's because one of the questions I get a lot is why do all the rich people on earth want to leave the planet? And, and the funny thing is the reality of it is I don't think any of the rich people are going to be leaving the planet. I think, I think the kinds of people that are going to be going into space, it's such a harsh environment are going to be people that are looking for a better life than what they have here on earth, uh, at least initially. And, and I think the expanse did a great job of, of kind of showing the grittier side of what the early days of humanity as a multi-planet species may end up looking like. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, that's what historically happened on earth, right? People leaving sort of like major European cities to go to what's now the US or Australia. Exactly. <laughs> for exactly. certain reasons. Great, Guillermo. Fantastic hearing about Humans to Venus. This was your second time. You know, I hope this is going to go so well. I'm really excited about this project that, you know, we're going to have you on a third time or even more um, in, I don't know, maybe a couple of years or so. And we'll hear about all of the progress. So thank you very much for coming on. Well, thanks for having me. And hopefully what you'll have on is the CEOs of our portfolio companies as they start launching over the next. Sounds good. We'll do that. Thanks. Great. Thanks, Rafael. Well, that's it for another nominal episode of the Space Business Podcast. 
If you like this podcast, please consider giving it a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. Also consider supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. If the podcast got you interested in learning more about the business opportunities in the space economy, check out my new online course on space entrepreneurship on udemy.com. The link is in the episode description. Lastly, if you have any feedback, including ideas for guests, and that may include yourself if you have an exciting space story to tell, or interested in being a sponsor, drop us an email at spacebusinesspodcast at gmail.com. I look forward to seeing you for the next episode.